What a sign it is creaking. We see your lost soul with our wandering eye. There's only one light on, and the darkness is creeping. There's only one light, and the chill in the air. We promise you stories for one night only. Come closer to friend. Come in. Take a look around. When you finish browsing, why not come warm yourself by the fire? We promise we won't bite. We might even tell you a story. Or two. Maybe offer you a biscuit. Or two. Now this week's flavour is salted chocolate and rosemary cookies. They are my ultimate favourite. They are very, very tasty. Now where were we? In 1836, a group of boys trudged the northeast slopes of Arthur's Seat, looking for rabbit holes, and subsequently, dinner. Or, perhaps, a little money to be made. Whatever the boys were doing when they left the city that day and trudged to Holyrood, off the east end of Edinburgh, they certainly didn't expect to stumble across a mystery that still baffles experts today. Whilst on their hunt, the boys came across a small cave and decided to explore. Maybe they'd find treasure, or possibly something bigger than rabbits. What they got were 17 miniature coffins, stacked atop each other in two rows of eight, with a single coffin sat on top. Each row was separated by a large slate, and according to the Scottish National Museum, the coffins themselves measured only 95mm in length. That is to say, about half the length of a ballpoint pen. So how come these tiny coffins have become such a big deal? Well, since their discovery, countless explanations for the mysterious coffins have been brought forward. There are a few things we know for certain, but it appears that the tiny bodies inside the coffins may have originally been toy soldiers, and that the materials they are dressed in only date back to 1830 just six years before they were found. With this discovery, we can rule out the idea that they were remnants from a time long past, and instead look at what was happening in the 1830s that may have influenced someone to create this miniature tomb. One explanation that was bandied around at the time was, of course, witchcraft. It's easy to see how some may have assumed the bodies within the coffins to be satanic icons of some sort, but then, throughout history, witches seem to have been the easy scapegoat for anything not readily explainable. The Scotsman ran a story with the headline reporting the coffins as the result of a satanic spell manufactory on the 16th of July, 1836. 
Although this dramatic statement was probably an excellent ploy to sell papers at the time, as Edinburgh has a long and twisted history when it comes to witches, this is not a theory that has pervaded over time. In 1976, the director of the Museum of Hamburg History came forward with the idea that the Arthur C. Coffins could have been talismans that were sold to keep soldiers and sailors safe, and that they may have merely been being stored in the cave, which might explain the strange layered stacking of the coffins, rows of eight so that they were easy to count, and possibly a free space to store your stock. Alongside this, at a time when setting sail meant no contact with the world outside your boat for possibly several months, and no easy way to call for help in a desperate situation, many sailors and their families turned to superstitions and talismans that they held close, in the hope that they would keep themselves and their loved ones safe. In the face of the unpredictable sea, it's easy to see how a supernatural anchor to good luck could go a long way to calm one's anxieties. Despite this, nothing else was found in the cave to support this theory, and the steep northeast slope of Arthur's Seat doesn't seem the easiest place to be lugging stock to and from the city. In another article published by the Scotsman, this one from the 18th of April 2018, an author named Jeff Nesbitt, whose name was spelt differently twice in the article and has therefore been difficult to track down, claimed he had the answer. To his mind, the coffins with their morbid cargo were made as a memorial to those who died during a workers' uprising in 1820. This event was known as the Radical War. Prior to the uprising, working-class people all across England and Scotland had been speaking out against low wages and ill-treatment and petitioning Westminster for change. At this point in history, the very idea of votes for women was almost a century away, and within society, working-class men couldn't yet vote. In essence, they were fighting for basic rights against an upper-class government who wanted to keep them exactly where they were. We know for sure that three weavers who led the rebellion were hung for treason, and the others were most likely shipped off to Australia. Whatever the true reason is behind the mystery of the Arthur's Seat coffins, after disappearing for nearly 70 years, eight of the coffins resurfaced and were donated to the Scottish National Museum, where you can still see them and ponder the mystery of their creation for yourself. Queensbury House was built in 1667 for Dame Margaret of Balmakelly, with over 50 rooms, a 70-foot gallery-style lookout and elaborate gardens, its opulence was the envy of the Scottish upper classes. In 1689, the house was bought by William Douglas, the first Duke of Queensbury. While the family would certainly have been in high spirits after acquiring such a luxurious house, tragedy soon struck. William's eldest daughter was tending to the drawing room fireplace when her apron suddenly caught fire. Writhing in agony, she suffered terrible facial burns and smoke inhalation, which led to a slow and painful death a few years later. This horrific incident rocked the family, but far worse was soon to come for the Douglases. When William died in 1695, the estate passed to his eldest son, James, 
who became the second Duke of Queensbury. Now James was already a very unpopular man throughout Scotland for his support of the Jacobites, but his orchestration of the 1707 Act of Union, which led to Scottish independence coming to an end, was the final straw for the Scottish people. James had always dreamt of making his political mark on the country, and now it was finally happening. He was revered amongst his upper-class peers, often invited to enjoy a whisky after meetings. But behind this political status, James was hiding a dark secret. Records at the time stated that the Duke's eldest son, also named James, had died young, something which unfortunately was all too common back then. Between 1580 and 1720, almost a third of children died before the age of 15. However, James Jr, Earl of Dunlanrig, did not pass away. Instead, he was diagnosed by the family doctor as dangerously insane. The family imprisoned the young boy in a small room in the basement with boarded up windows, banishing him to a life in the dark rather than face the shame of society's gaze. Guarded by a rotation of servants, James was only fed every two days. Why waste more food on him than necessary? While very little was known back then about mental illness, it's widely assumed that he had some form of psychosis. Described as a large, brutish boy of great strength, who had an uneven temper, James was feared by many of the servants. Reported to be just 10 years old at the time, this treatment is unbelievably cruel. On the fateful night that the Act of Union was being signed, the Duke and his family left Queensbury House to attend Parliament, narrowly avoiding the rioting crowd of Scots, who were furious at the rumours he had accepted a large bribe to pass the bill. With the uproar around the city, many servants left their post that night, assumedly to join the street parties held by people who were happy about the Union. Sadly, this included the valet that was supposed to be guarding James that night. Only a teenage scullion was left behind to cook the meat for the family's return. At some point during the evening, James must have become hungry. It was his second day without food and the valet was over two hours late bringing his dinner. At first, he shouted. Then he used his fists to beat at the door. Hammering loudly, James became more and more frustrated. Now it's widely assumed that he used brute force to break down the door, but his young age somehow makes this unlikely. Perhaps he used something in the room, a chair maybe, to beat down the door. Perhaps the valet had simply left the door unlocked. Either way, at some point during the evening he escaped from the room. He stalked around the mansion, surprised that no servants came running to drag him back to the darkness. Lamps would have been left burning for the Duke's return, illuminating the gilded portraits that hung on the walls. Perhaps James searched them for any sign of himself, becoming more and more enraged by this life that he had been denied. The smell of roasting meat eventually lured him to the kitchen, where the scullion must have shrunk back in fear. Being kept in a dark room for so many years, 
James must have appeared deathly pale, with sunken eyes and wild hair. The servants would have told scary stories about who, or what, was locked in the forbidden room. It's not unreasonable to say that this boy may have thought a phantom had just appeared before him. Before he could let out a scream, James ran at the boy, dragging him to the floor and quickly overpowering him. It was some time before the family returned home, joined by important members of Parliament, keen to celebrate their evening's work. Pleased to find the smell of meat wafting through the house, the Duke ushered them into the dining room. After some time, when the servants still hadn't appeared, the Duke excused himself and strode off to search for the help, growing angrier with each step. How dare they embarrass him like this on his big night? Heading into the kitchen, the Duke let out a haunting shriek when he found the scullion's body impaled on the spit, flames licking into the flesh. From the corner of the room, he heard a chuckle. Turning, he found his son, sitting on a rickety wooden stool, devouring the scullion's roasted arm. A nation already shocked at the betrayal of their leaders were horrified by the tale of the cannibal Earl of Drumlanrig and called for him to be put to death. Reports say that under the cloak of darkness, James was shipped off to English relatives, where he lived for a few more years before mysteriously dying. It's reasonable to assume that the English cousins grew tired of his unpredictable behaviour and had him disposed of. Today, Queensbury House is part of Scottish Parliament. Ironic, really, seeing as it was the place where Scotland lost its independence all those years ago. It's rumoured that the very kitchen where this horrific story unfolded is still used to prepare the politicians' lunches. It's been outdated, of course, with all the mod cons you would expect that posh people require. Several reports have been made by civil servants working late that the smell of roasting meat sometimes wafts through the building, long after the chefs have left for the night. Now some say it smells like chicken, others swear blind that it's beef, but the thing all reports seem to agree on is that it smells delicious. If you, like us, are interested in macabre history, you may, in your travels, have come across a place called Grassmarket, which sits at the base of Edinburgh Castle and served for centuries as a place for trade and commerce. Oh, and public executions. While there are many grim stories that can be told about this unassuming and really rather charming cobbled marketplace, it isn't where the majority of today's tale takes place. At one corner of the market is the West Bow, a street as winding and steep as it is interesting. That is to say, if you are happy to trade a little exertion for a stream of interesting independent shops and Harry Potter knickknacks, then I think you'll be more than pleased with what you find. But as in any old city, and Edinburgh is older than most, if you peer even slightly under the modern veneer, you'll find some very peculiar stories, and none possibly more so than that of Major Thomas Weir. 
I'm sure it would help to tell you more about Major Weir's childhood, but as we're keeping things short and sweet today, I'll stick to the strangest parts. You see, Weir had a particular standing in Edinburgh society, especially among the Presbyterian congregation. In fact, they loved him so much, he was known as Angelic Thomas, one of the Bowhead Saints. Not a nickname that would stick around for long. An ex-military man, Weir was treated with respect and was revered for his devotion to the church. He even took in his spinster sister, Jean, known as Grizel, after his own wife died so she didn't have to live alone. He was the epitome of the caring, devoted Christian. Fiercely anti-royalist, he was a man loved by the people. And he wouldn't have been such a recognisable figure without the walking staff he carried everywhere he went, black, with the head of a goat, or, according to some, carved centaurs sitting atop it. That was until, it seems, the dark secrets he kept were set free. While speaking at a religious gathering in 1670, as he had done so many times before, Weir, seemingly unprovoked by anything other than a guilty conscience, began confessing to all sorts of heinous and heretical crimes. Weir admitted to the crowd that he was an occultist, a devil worshipper, that he had engaged in bestiality and incest, that his trademark staff was a source of his power and a gift from Satan himself. Of course, the flock were shocked. Who was this man Weir was speaking of? Not the good and pious Protestant who stood before them. Surely these claims were the fabrications of an ill mind. And whether they were or not, the church decided to keep the whole event as secret as they could. According to one source, the Major was already ill before his outburst, but, according to others, and more likely, it was a ploy to keep him inside and away from prying eyes and ears until they could figure out what to do with him. As far as anyone who hadn't been there could tell, Weir had taken ill and was holed up in his house on West Bow. But word made its way across the city until it got to the door of the Lord Provost, Sir Andrew Ramsay, who, unable to ignore Weir's condemning account, sent his own people to check on him. Finding the Major in perfect health, Ramsay had his house searched, where there were found coins which summoned poltergeists and exploding roots in the fireplace. Weir was arrested on charges of bestiality and incest, both of which were confirmed by his sister, who was also detained, and these strange siblings were sentenced to death. Although not a part of the initial confession, it seems that Jean didn't try to dispute the accusations. Though much less is known about her, the information we do have, that she had a horseshoe-shaped witch's mark on her brow, and that she must have followed in her mother's footsteps, a woman who herself was thought to have been a sorceress, were most likely rumours whispered by a society that held a genuine fear of witchcraft. In reality, we do know that she said her brother's staff had been used to commit filthiness not to be named, and, although like me, you are probably curious, it is perhaps best that we are not privy to the exact nature of filthiness to which she is referring. Supposedly, before being hung, Jean slapped the executioner 
and then stripped naked, which, if you're going to die, I suppose is probably one way of feeling like you have some form of control over the situation. Weir met his own end rather gruesomely. After being strangled, his body was lit on fire, his favoured staff alongside him. Onlookers swore that as it burned, the staff gave off foul, acrid smoke. The Weir's house can still be found today, although it stood empty for a hundred years, the first tenant inside lasted only one night, as history is wont to do, it has smoothed the edges of this strange tale which has lost some of its terrible shine. According to some, however, the looming shadow of Major Thomas Weir has been spotted on moonlit nights, stalking the length of the West Bow, his trusty staff clicking at his heels. Hello, I'm Jasper. I'm Meg. And you have been listening to Wondering Eye Curios podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Very much so. <laughs> As it is only the second one that we've done. Uh, and we hope you enjoyed like all of the creepy, creepy, creepy stories. There were some real creepy ones this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think the... Uh, the Queensbury House cannibal, which if you listen to the, the last episode, um, we, we mentioned. Uh, <laughs> the Douglas clan. Yes, yeah, they, they've been mentioned a few times mm-hmm. now um, in the the Black Dinner story about the, the poor unfortunate noble boys um, mm. from the last episode who were murdered in a very horrible way. Um, but yeah, the Douglas name seems to pop up a lot when you're um, researching Scottish history. Yeah, there's a lot of sons, a lot of Jameses. Yeah. Many Dukes. So mm. many Jameses. So many Jameses. Yeah. yeah. And it seems like all of the kings died so horribly. Yeah. As well. <laughs> it's a cheery one this time. Mm-hmm. Mm. But yeah, the uh, the cannibal Earl of Drumanrig is uh, a particularly good one. So yeah, I'm from Gloucester, and the way I say that word is funny. It's just so. your accent doesn't really come across no. that that much. It's just that vowel sound. It's R and L together. So no. Earl, girl, pearl. It's a whole thing, and yeah, I'm so sorry. It's awful, Do but not it's going to keep happening it's throughout. Makes me happy. Makes me happy. Mm-hmm. Just the Gloucestershire way. Gloucester's also an incredibly haunted place. Yeah. So at some it point is. we're going to be looking into that. And there's, the Cotswolds. Uh, yeah. There's lots of old haunted pubs. There's uh, Presbury, which is apparently mm-hmm. the most haunted village in England, if not the UK. Uh, I once went on a walk around there at midnight. Ooh, we brave. did not find any ghosts. Okay. We did accidentally scream at an old man. Huh. I'm so sorry. <laughs> was he doing anything? No, but it, we met him at the apex of a very sharp corner next to a graveyard. Uh, and if you've ever really been to a small village in the UK, you'll know there aren't many streetlights. So, bless him, he... <laughs> yes, was quite gaunt. And Amazing. I don't know, I just... We frightened ourselves... Uh, he didn't seem too affected by it, so maybe it happens to him a lot, or maybe he was a ghost. Maybe he was maybe a ghost. He didn't a ghost. Yeah. Um, but there's some really cool stories from there that we will definitely mm. 
be telling at I some point. I have a similar story to that, um, which I don't think I've ever told you. Um, basically, I grew up in and around Gloucester. The place my parents still live right now is called Long Leathams. And there's sort of some country back roads where you can go to the uh, White Horse Chinese restaurant, which we've <laughs> frequented many a time. Um, and down this country lane, like Is Jasper said. Like parking lot place? Is it that? Yeah. One? There's okay. like horses near it. Oh. Yeah. Which okay. is not unbelievable for England. No, see, I was thinking like White Horse Hill. Oh, no. No, no. It's just not called the White there. Horse. Okay, no. sorry. Continue. Who knows? Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the way to get there from my house is on a a dark country lane, pitch black, there's nothing around. Uh, I was with my mum and I believe her friend Jan. Um, and even though <laughs> Everyone knows a Jan. Yeah, lovely Jan. But um, for some reason we were lost. We didn't quite know where we were going. I guess it was the first time we'd been. And uh, there was an old woman um, just walking in the dark and like, oh no. Okay. Oh. And mum decided... I think Jan was driving potentially, decided to pull over and ask directions. I was in the back. Mum, like, just opened the fucking door. I pulled it shut because I was like, nah, mate, I'm not dying today. Um, and yeah, she was like opening the window and I was not having it. So I was very uh, vocal about the fact that I didn't want to be killed by this old lady phantom. And mum thinks it's hysterical, but she was definitely a ghost. Why was she walking down a country lane? Pitch had white hair, she was gone. Like, I'm so sorry, old lady. You were just trying to be nice, but no. What if she wasn't okay and she'd, like, wandered out of her house somewhere? Don't give a shit. Leave her on the road. <laughs> I'm not, it's not worth the risk. <laughs> she had a dog, so she was obviously, like, just out walking the dog. But I think she was a ghost, so... Dog no. walking ghost. And mum will listen to this and laugh at me. So, <laughs> thanks, mum. You nearly got me killed that day. Okay. Oh, dear. Mm. Oh, dear. Yeah, um... And then we had a really nice Chinese, so that was good. If, if you don't know any part of um, Gloucester or Gloucestershire, you will have at some point, if you have watched any kind of TV, have seen the inside of the Gloucester Cathedral, which is absolutely... Mm. Stunning. Absolutely stunning. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, it's been on, like, Doctor Who, Harry I'm pretty Potter. sure, Harry Potter. Like, it's one of those filming locations that they just... They always go back to. It's got... Are they vaults? Underneath is that what they are? Because it's like an area underneath where there's lots of stone and like pillars and lots of places filmed down there as well it's as just in the, the corridors. Actual... Is it? Yeah. I'm, oh, I remember being in there once and there was like another section. I mean, I've never been in any vaults, but there might be. Mm. Um, yeah, the corridors uh, you can see specifically in the first two Harry Potter films when there's like students wandering about between classes. Mm -hmm. um, what I especially enjoy is all the monks' toilets. <laughs> um, which are just open air toilets in uh, no! in one of the corridors that obviously whenever they film in there they don't go in that because it's like a f like a square essentially they don't go in that bit oh god no yeah. so like when uh, you see the troll coming through <laughs> in uh, Chamber of Secrets that's uh, Gloucester Cathedral when there's shadows up on the on the wall that's which is some cool. nerdy knowledge for yeah. yeah but yeah Gloucester Cathedral is beautiful it's a really really assumedly haunted place um, but very lovely I mean surely like very old yes. we'll look up ghosts from there mm -hmm. um, at, at some point yeah. there's probably some nasty history most likely my favourite kind mm. <laughs> there's definitely some uh, some famous serial killers from around there so. yeah if we really want to delve into the wests everyone who's anyone who has lived everyone who's in... anyone <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> that's a uh, saying. That's yeah, a but thing. that's like for famous people, not like <laughs> true crime. No, but I'm, yeah, I mean, yeah, like I know, in I like people. Anyone who's been in, around Gloucester. Yeah, for like a good, I don't know how long ago they were actually there. Was it like twenty years ago? Fred was arrested in '92, so it was two years before I was born. No, '94. It was the year I was born. Yeah. So yeah, so about 20. it is about twenty yeah. years ago. Everyone has a story. I mean, I didn't live in the area at the time, but like, as, as, as soon as you get talking to someone in Gloucester about it, mm. someone has a story. Everyone knew them. It's very, it's very weird. Very strange. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really know Gloucester that well, to be fair. I know it very well, and it's not a nice place. <laughs> <laughs> the people are nice, but it's a bit of a shithole. Which is why I live in Edinburgh now. Yeah, that's yeah. why we both live in Edinburgh. Yeah, I'd always planned to move here, because I lived in Scotland for a bit when I was a kid, with my lovely family in Oban. Um, but I always planned to move here after I finished art uni. I had to move back home to Gloucester to save money, and my very lovely parents <laughs> let me live there. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I was always intending to come back to Scotland. Somehow managed to convince Jasper to come. So I that's mean, like part of our our lovely, cute friend story. <laughs> it like it is yeah. I'd spent time in Scotland before, but not in Edinburgh. And oh, then you'd done the Fringe before. Yeah, because I'm the artsy fartsy type. Mm. I played at the Fringe, like I don't know how many years ago now. I was young. Two thousand. I was. 17? So young. I was like, no way, because I was like... No, you were younger. 18. Wow. Or 19. Jasper's a baby. Maybe 19 I was. I was, I was. Um, and just totally fell in love with the city. Yeah. Just, yeah, just, it's beautiful. Um, and quite small. Mm. Which I like, because if you suffer from anxiety, you will know how easy it is to get overwhelmed and um i think being able to just hop on a bus and be at the beach or at hollywood or the meadows or some nice open space like so easily just just makes makes such a difference um, well apart from like august <laughs> Every year, yeah. where I spend a month shoulder barging tourists mm. off the pavement. <laughs> yeah, we're nice. <laughs> we're nice people. The rest of the year, we're not in August. No, because you can't get on no. the pavements. Yeah. Like I know that sounds drastic. But no, you genuinely can't. It's no. unbelievable. It's what like triple the population. It's in something August. crazy like yeah. that. So this year, obviously, with everything going on, it's been mad anyway but this year having the city to ourselves has been weird but really fucking nice yeah like we walked down the royal mile what twice um Mm. during august Mm -hmm. no we don't separately because we weren't allowed to meet up yeah it's really in the middle of town and it's quite touristy so if you live in edinburgh unless you're trying to go from like a to b Mm. and it happens to be on your way then I mean, you don't go on it anywhere, and you certainly fucking don't go on it during the fringe. No, and I only go there now because of where I live. In fact, we've only gone there recently because of yeah. like where I live now. It's just easier. Um, but I mean, I feel like Edinburgh must have quite a high population anyway. Oh yeah. Because it's always been a city of like people living on top of mm-hmm. each other, and you know the flat blocks are really tall. And that's why there were eleven plagues. <sighs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. never gonna let that go. No. 
11. It's mad. Just stay indoors. Yeah. I mean, don't, because that's where all the infectious people were. Yeah, but, like, on your own indoors, I mean. like That not... wasn't a thing back then. They'd have, like, three families in one flat. Get in the sea. <laughs> Advice to all you infectious people out there. Get in the sea. Get or get in the a swimming pool. Because I oh, swear yeah, I heard at the beginning of this, be chlorine has, yeah. like, an effect. <laughs> I know. A good one? <laughs> Not if it's pure chlorine. <laughs> like, chlorine is what, like, mustard yeah. gas or something is, is made it? from. Yeah. I don't know if it's mustard gas, but it, it's one of the gases that they weaponized um, is, is made from chlorine. Damn. It'll kill you. Mm-hmm. But apparently it helps in this case. Yeah. There's so many things in history like yeah, that. Yeah. Like heroin. <laughs> and, like... Yeah. Well, opiates in general, we know, are, like... I mean, yeah, like cough medicines probably did help you out if you were doped up on God knows what. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then you think about what like chemo does to the body. Mm. It's like sometimes we have to take illegal drugs. I'm so worried that you guys can hear that person like hoovering or. <laughs> no, it stopped now, it's fine. I don't know what they were doing. It didn't quite sound like a hoover. That's what you get for living in a flat block. There's so many weird sounds. Which at takes all us times. back to everyone living on top of each other Ayy. in Edinburgh. We're professionals. Yeah, we know how to bring it back around mm-hmm. by accident. Oh, there it goes again. Oh, yeah. We're going to play some music anyway. Yeah, so worry. You probably don't you hear it and just think we're insane. So, do you have a story for us, Jasper? I do. Um, and I'm afraid it's not necessarily as funny mm. as um, or pure. Sir Olaf, so pure. Mm-hmm. What a babe. Um, and this might be sacrilegious, actually. Ooh. So it's about bagpipes, um, which, as everyone knows, are a very... Uh, well, we kind of think of them as a very Scottish phenomenon i guess um and but yeah so it's basically the idea that they they might not be as originally scottish as they're made out to be but in their sort of precursor format if you will um were from egypt um that sounds like a lie well so apparently um bagpipes are scottish as early as like 400 BC, there there's a group known as the Pipers of Thebes, which um, okay. Can I be part of that, please? Can I be? Can I join that group? That sounds great. I don't know. Can you play the bagpipes? Yes. Can you speak other languages? Yes. Are you lying? Yes. Okay. Well, <laughs> we'll consider it and we'll weigh up your options. Okay. Well, I'm just putting it out there. Well, I would like to be that's part. fine. Put it on a mood board. <laughs> <laughs> with your You've holiday and your secret. dream car. <laughs> no, I love a no, good mood board. No so hard to get me off Pinterest. Um, but yeah, as early yeah, as 400 true. BC, the Pipers of Thebes um, were reported to be blowing pipes made from dog skin with chanters of bone. Chanters, you say? Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm not Scottish. Jasper's last name is Chanter. Yeah. Um, I don't actually know. Is that is that the part that you blow into, I'm assuming? No. 
I can't play bagpipes. <laughs> it's just every time that someone like finds out my name up here, and usually it's not Scottish people. Normally it's like other English people who are like, ah, and I'm like, no, no. Like my whole family is from like the southest south. Like we're from Devon. And then at some point it was like, well, maybe it's Chante, maybe it's French, <laughs> you know, maybe you came over with the Normans. No, no, Just it was the um, 18th Bishop of Exeter, mm. who uh, his name was uh, on his gravestone in the cathedral. It's like one of the ones in the floor that you walk over because that's respectful. Mm. Um, and... His name in Latin was John Planeta, which roughly translates to John the Chanter, so he was basically the choir master. And there is your etymology lesson mm. for the week. And apparently all Devonshire chanters are related. So my family history is really hard to find because they're all farmer country bumpkins who kept no records of what they were doing. So that's about as good as we have. Um, but yeah, there you go. Bagpipes are Egyptian. Suck on that. Um, <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Well, don't blow. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. That's not. <laughs> You've got to learn. I don't to know how bagpipes work. <laughs> <laughs> Leave me alone. Wandering Eye Curios is brought to you by myself, Jasper Chanter, and my co-host Meg James. The podcast is scripted and performed by both of us and produced by me. Music is scored and performed by Amy Marianne with lyrics by myself. Our intro song, For Better or Worse, is sung by us. Find us on Instagram at WanderingEyeCurios and over on Twitter at WanderingEyePod. Stay spooky, friends. Until next time. Admitted to the crowd that he was an occultist. Oh.